Hi, it's Chris Flanagan here. Welcome to the Paediatric Emergencies podcast. So today I'm going to continue on with the Paediatric Critical Care Perils, and this is part four in the series, and there's probably going to be five parts in this series. Um, the pearls are in no particular order, so don't feel you have to go back and listen to parts one, two, and three before listening to this one. You can do them in whatever order you want. So we're going to get started with uh, Pearl 31. And Pearl 31 is early antibiotics are not enough. They have to be appropriate. Um, and this really comes in, I think we're very good when patients come in from home to hospital um, with suspected sepsis in prescribing antibiotics. Because the antibiotics we generally give are directed against community acquired organisms. Um, where I see this going wrong is the child who's admitted from the ward. Um, they've maybe been in the ward for weeks or months. Um, there's concerns about sepsis. So community acquired antibiotics are prescribed um, rather than directing the antibiotics towards hospital acquired bugs. So this is where I commonly see this going wrong. Your antibiotics that you prescribe need to be directed against the likely source of sepsis. And if your patient has spent a fair bit of their time in hospital, then hospital-acquired bugs are what you're going to need to cover. So I think we're very good at getting antibiotics in quickly to your patients. But if you're prescribing antibiotics that aren't likely to cover the organisms covering the infection, you're wasting your time getting them in early. So it's a combination of speed and appropriateness of the antibiotics that is important. Pearl 32, know your dead space. Um, this is really important. If you're giving medications to your patient, and particularly, I'm thinking here of life-saving medications such as vasoactive drugs, it's important that you know the dead space. So the dead space is also the, the cannula or line that you're giving it but also whatever connectors you have on the end of that cannula online. And I suppose the common scenario um, that this is done wrong in is your septic patient who you're starting on peripheral vasoactive drugs to cover the intubation and make it safer. So I know the cannulas I use have a dead space of 0.1 mils and the connectors that go on the end of these have a dead space of 0.3 mils. So there's a total dead space of 0.4 mils on the cannula and connectors that I use. So for example, if I've got a three kilo baby and I'm gonna start them on some peripheral adrenaline, it will actually take 27 minutes for the peripheral adrenaline infusion, starting at a normal dose of 0.1 mics per kilo per minute to get through that dead space. So that's a really long time and Nobody is waiting 27 minutes to intubate that sick child while the adrenaline works its way through the line. So it's important you know your dead space. If I know my dead space is 0.4 mils, what I'm doing at the start is just bolusing those 0.4 mils. And then very quickly, the adrenaline will reach the patient. So whatever your dead space is, you need to know it. Um, the easiest way to do this is outside the emergency situation get yourself a one mil syringe full of saline. Take whatever line and connectors you're gonna be using, um, connect them up, obviously not in a patient, and they're full of air at the moment. Put your one mil syringe of saline on the end and flush through, and note how much you've injected before the saline starts to come out the end of the cannula or line. 
and that way save that figure away so the next time you need to start emergency drugs you can start them bolus the amount you need to and then start them at whatever rate you want the infusion to run at and there'll be no delay then in the administration of a life-saving drug to your patient okay moving on parallel 33 um, use caution when choosing the site for a central line in a cardiac baby um, this is particularly important and it depends obviously what the cardiac anatomy is of the, the patient you're dealing with. So for example if you've got a baby who's likely to need an atrial septostomy, um, for example transposition of the great arteries, don't put a femoral central line in. And the reason for that, this baby is likely to need access in their femoral vein to perform the septostomy. So if you've blocked one of the femoral veins with a central line, that leaves only one side. Even worse, if you wreck the femoral vessels, then this procedure can become very difficult. The other group of patients is the babies who are likely to go down the univentricular route, for example, hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So these babies are gonna need a series of operations, um, ultimately resulting in a fontan circulation. Um, if you put a neckline in and cause a clot, in the SVC, um, you can actually limit the what can be done surgically in these babies. So generally, we should be avoiding necklines in babies who have a univentricular heart or who are likely to go down a fontan circulation in the future. Okay, pearl thirty-four. Never insert an ulnar arterial line, and only use the brachial artery as a last resort. So why am I saying never insert an ulnar arterial line? So the hand has um, collateral arterial supply. Normally, the radial artery is more superficial and actually when you palpate it, you'll have a better pulse. The ulnar artery is much deeper, so generally it's harder to feel. Um, most of the time we're putting, because of ease of insertion, we're putting radial arterial lines in. So the only reason really you would put an ulnar arterial line in is if you couldn't really feel the radial artery, meaning that the ulnar artery um, had a better pulsation. The, the problem with this is, the reason you can't probably feel the radial artery is you've got impaired supply. So if you now block the ulnar artery with a line, you're going to have impaired perfusion to that hand. Ideally, you should be doing Allen's test before um, putting the arterial line in to make sure there's a collateral supply on the hand. But if you're even thinking about putting an ulnar arterial line in, it's probably because there's impaired supply from the radial artery, so it's a bad idea. Um, when it comes to the brachial artery, it's probably the, the most high-risk artery for limb ischemia. Um, it's an end artery. Um, you do have other options if you want to go into bigger arteries that are probably safer. Um, the axillary artery has some collateral supply. It's also a bigger vessel, so less likely to have impaired supply. Um, by partially blocking it with an arterial line. And although the femoral artery is an end artery, it's slightly bigger than the brachial artery, so you're less likely to have problems with flow around the catheter. So again, better to avoid the ulnar artery and the brachial artery if you can. And if you do need to use them, make sure you can explain why you've taken that step based on risk benefits. Okay, Pearl 35, um, the first action to take in a peri-arrest ventilated asthmatic patient is to disconnect the endotracheal tube from the ventilator. 
So you need to have a system for dealing with a patient who crashes on the ventilator. Um, and the simplest thing to remember is dopes. So the D stands for displaced endotracheal tube. Um, the tube can either be in too far or have come out of the trachea. If it's in too far, it can be up against the carina, um, interfering with your ventilation or down one of the lungs, causing you problems. Um, if it's come out of the trachea, obviously that might be why you're not ventilating well. The tube can become obstructed, which is what the O stands for. P is for pneumothorax, and the best way to diagnose that at the bedside is with uh, an ultrasound. E is for equipment failure, and the best way to rule that out is take the patient off the ventilator and put them onto a bag. And S stands for stacked breasts. So there's only a few circumstances really you're going to see stacked breasts, um, and asthma is one of them. Um, what happens in an asthmatic is they have difficulty getting air out of their lungs. No problem getting it in, but they struggle to get it out. And when you listen to an asthmatic's chest, you get prolongation of the expiratory phase. They're struggling to get air out, and they wheeze. Um, what happens if you take over their breathing and put them on a ventilator, um, and if the patient hasn't finished emptying their lungs before the next breath comes along, what will actually happen over time, the lungs will become more and more distended. As they haven't finished the last breath, another breath comes in, and as time goes on, the lungs will distend. That will eventually impair venous return to the heart, so your preload is going to go down. And what you'll find is so similar effects to attention pneumothorax, where you've got impaired venous return caused by an airspace. The only difference with attention pneumothorax is the air is outside the lungs in attention pneumothorax. With a breath stacking in an asthmatic, the air is inside the lungs. So the first thing you need to do in this situation to rectify it is just disconnect the patient from the ventilator. Leave the endotracheal tube open to air. If breath stacking is the problem, you'll hear a hiss coming from the end of the endotracheal tube. Um, if you don't hear that and the chest isn't deflating, what you can do is manually decompress the chest, which is just basically putting your hands on top of the chest and pressing and evacuating any air from the lungs. And if this is your problem, what you'll find is the blood pressure instantly comes up and things will improve. If it's not the problem, then you need to go back to your dose assessment and look at the other parameters, trying to find out what's causing your patient to deteriorate. But with common things being common, um, this is this is probably the most common reason an asthmatic will deteriorate on the ventilator, and it's often a very simple thing that you need to do to fix it. So for any peri-arrest, crash an asthmatic patient on the ventilator, just disconnect them from the ventilator, leave the endotracheal tube open to air. If that doesn't improve things, then the next thing I would do is manually decompress the chest. And again, if that doesn't improve things, okay, it's not air trapping, we'll look at the other reasons why the patient could have deteriorated on the ventilator with a dose assessment. Okay, pearl 36. Ensure the ventilator tubing, uh, ventilator and filters that you're using are suitable for use in critically ill children. So where does this come in? Um, generally not a big problem for people who are used to dealing with critically ill children and ventilating children. It comes in where children are intubated and ventilated in district general hospitals without dedicated paediatric equipment. Um, so they're put on to an adult anaesthetic machine or a transport ventilator that's designed for adults. And the problem with a lot of these things are that the circuits have a lot of dead space 
So when you dial up an appropriate tidal volume for your patient, you're not only ventilating your patient, but you're also ventilating the large circuit. And actually the patient can receive very little of that ventilation and you'll find you've got a really sky high CO2. Um, so it's important you look at this in advance, check the equipment that you're going to be using in a critically ill child is suitable for use in children. And again, as part of your dopes assessment of a kid deteriorating on a ventilator, it could be equipment failure. So take the kid off the ventilator, put them onto a bag and circuit, see does that fix your problem. And if it does, it's likely your equipment was to blame. Um, the other things that you can get into, particularly in small children, if you have a particularly long endotracheal tube that hasn't been cut, um, you can have ex excessive dead space and that can give you problems. Very rare that that will give you problems if you're using a decent ventilator to compensate for that dead space. Um, and the other thing is if you put adult filters onto a paediatric circuit, um, a lot of these can have quite a big dead space um, and will give you similar problems to using the wrong circuit or ventilator, um, particularly if you're using this with an neonate. So check all the kits you're using is suitable for critically ill children. Okay, pearl 37, so don't rewarm the post-arrest patient and make sure you insert a temperature probe. So we've recently in the last few years changed what we're doing um, post-cardiac arrest in children. Um, prior to the last few years ago and uh, the targeted temperature management and THACA studies, we were using therapeutic hypothermia in children. So we were cooling patients to between 32 and 34 degrees um, to have a neuroprotective benefit. We now know that um, normothermia is as good as hypothermia in the post-arrest patient. But what's important is that it's targeted normothermia. So we're making sure the patient doesn't get hot. We're putting them on exactly the same cooling blanket, but we're dialing up 36 or 36.5 instead of the 33 that we used to input. So we're keeping the patient at that temperature and importantly, preventing pyrexia. So there's a common misconception in that we don't cool children anymore, so temperature is not important. Like I said, that's not the case. These kids must be kept normothermic and must not get warm. So temperature is just as important, um, but what we set the temperature at um, has changed. Um, and the worry is that then that the kid comes into the district general hospital and people will start to warm these children up. They put the bear hugger on because the temperature's cool and they'll warm them up to normothermia. The problem with this is that the next time you check the temperature, the child will be pyrexic and therefore any sort of neuroprotecting that you're going to do is going to be hampered by this pyrexia. Um, so we know that hypothermia and targeted normothermia are just as good as each other so we shouldn't be trying to warm these post-arrest patients up towards normothermia particularly if you're outside an intensive care environment where your control of temperature is going to be more difficult um, and less accurate than once the patient's in the ICU with a temperature probe in and on a cooling mattress. So for these children cold is absolutely fine provided they're above 33 degrees um, we shouldn't be trying to warm them up. That can be done gradually if we, if the intensivist wants normothermia rather than hypothermia once they've got to the intensive care environment. Um, and what you should be doing is putting a temperature probe in so that you can monitor temperature continuously.
while the child is in the district general hospital and on transfer to the intensive care environment and most importantly we need to prevent pyrexia in these children so don't rewarm the post-arrest patient and make sure you insert a continuous temperature probe moving on peril 38 um, avoid magnesium and phenytoin in cardiovascularly unstable patients where possible so these are two commonly given medications in critically ill children um, but most people aren't aware of their effects on the cardiovascular system um, so both these drugs will cause hypotension and for example if you have a sick cardiac baby or a septic patient and you give them one of these agents you're highly likely to drop the blood pressure so you should be trying to avoid them in these groups um, so phenytoin, um, it's easy. You can give them another anticonvulsant, for example, phenobarbitone or Keppra. So other agents that are less likely to have the cardiovascular side effects of phenytoin. Um, magnesium, um, a lot of the, particularly the meningococcal guidelines say if your magnesium is below a certain level, you should top it up. And they recommend doing so over 20 minutes. I do disagree with this. I think you have to look at the magnesium in a risk benefit uh, and decide, do I really need to top it up? Um, certainly if it's um, low um, and topping it up will improve cardiac function, but you need to do that safely. So I wouldn't give it over the 20 minutes. If I'm going to give it, I would give it much slower, over one to four hours. So I'm not saying to avoid these drugs. Um, they're good drugs and they, there's certain situations where they'll give you a lot of benefit. But I think what you have to do is, first of all, recognise that these agents will cause hypotension and some patients may not tolerate that, particularly your cardiac patients and your septic patients. So in those patient groups, weigh up your risks and benefits of giving the drugs. Is there any alternatives? If there's not an alternative, think about do I need to give it more slowly, particularly with the magnesium. Moving on, Pearl 39, um, use the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. Um, so I do have a whole separate podcast on the quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. And if you anyway deal with critically ill patients, you need to know this stuff. Um, what we'll commonly see is kids who've had a little bit of fluid resuscitation with normal saline get a hypochloremic acidosis. And somebody who's not skilled in interpreting the acid base using the quantitative approach will say, oh, this patient's got an increasing metabolic acidosis. It's because they're sick, they're behind in fluids, and we'll give them some more normal saline and make the acidosis worse. Whereas somebody who has, understands the quantitative approach will actually look at why the patient's acidosis has increased. And if it's not due to, for example, the increase in lactate, and it's only due to an increased chloride, we'll probably be quite happy with the blood gas. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and have a look at the um, acid-base interpretation podcast that I've done. Like I say, if you deal with critically ill patients, um, you need to know this stuff, and it just stops you looking like an idiot when you give a patient with a hyperchloremic acidosis a uh, normal saline bolus, and things get worse. Okay, so pearl number 40, final one of this session. Um, this is regarding preparing your patient for intubation and setting up equipment. So it's position the capnometer between the angle piece and the circuit rather than at the end of the angle piece. So what you'll see commonly when people are getting set up to intubate the patient, they put their continuous waveform capnometer um, at the end of the circuit. And 
you should be using your capnography when you're bagging the patient prior to intubation. It gives you an indication of whether you're getting air going in and out of the chest, and it's, it's really useful. Um, and what people generally do is they put the capnometer at the end of the circuit, um, between the circuit and the face mask. Um, the problem with this is that whenever you intubate the patient, and somebody then has to take the face mask off and put on the um, circuit onto the end of the endotracheal tube, um, probably 50% of the time, um, the capnography is left out of the circuit, so that it's, it's left attached to the face mask rather than attached to the circuit. So the way to solve this is you just move the capnometer a step back. So you put it behind the angle piece rather than um, attached directly the other end of the angle piece where the face mask is. And I'll put a picture up on the website so you can see what I mean by this. And this way you can disconnect the face mask, connect it onto the endotracheal tube and the CO2 is always in the circuit because it's slightly further back and it's not going to get left out. So it's just a simple step to make your life a wee bit easier. Okay, so that was another 10 paediatric critical care pearls. Um, I'll probably try and get one more part in this series. Just have to scratch my brain a little bit and think of a few more pearls for you. Thanks for listening.